The story you're about to hear can be painful to listen to and may bring up different emotions. If you need someone to talk to, please do not hesitate to reach out to someone or call the First Nation Health Authority 24-hour residential school crisis line at 1-866-925-4419. Hey guys, thanks for coming to check out another episode of Still Here, Still Healing. This is Jade. Um, On this episode, I had the opportunity to meet Marlene, who is from the Flying Dust First Nation here in Saskatchewan, and she attended the Beauvel Residential School during the 60s until she was about 12 years old. She now lives in Saskatoon working with mental health, and she also does a lot of work for um, advocating for youth. She really is an amazing woman. She's open and she's real about sharing her story because she realizes that all the things that she's been through can somehow help somebody else. I will warn you that this was a tough story and in the first portion as I was listening to her speak my heart was breaking for the child that she was because it's almost as if she was tricked into attending residential school. And you'll understand what I mean once you take a listen. So here's Marlene's story. Um, My name is Marlene Bear, and I'm from Flying Dust First Nation. Um, Went to school in Beauval, Beauval, Saskatchewan. It's about Oh, I'm not even sure how far away from Flying Dust, but it's the closest one. Um, I went there with, I guess I'll go back to where, before I went. Mm -hmm. I'm a fourth generation residential school survivor. And my biological mother was an alcoholic. And my grandmother... My and my grandfather raised us, and we were filthy rich. And I'm not talking money. We had we had a beautiful home. There was no drugs, no alcohol, and I'm really grateful these days because that's you know your formative years or up to you know five years old. And my grandparents taught me so much. And we ate well, we had cows, we had chickens, we had horses, but we all had to work. We all had to work. My grandparents built their own house without having any help at all from Indian Affairs or whoever helped in those days, I have no clue. And um, that house is still standing today. It's a beautiful house, it's a great big house. Um, they taught us a lot of values. I know how to speak my language. And we all knew how to speak and we all knew how to work. And we did not ever have to be scared about anything because my grandparents were always there. So we were extremely lucky to have them. And then... I'm not quite sure. I have all the I have all the paperwork of when mom, which is my grandma, sent us to 
Bobelle, I don't know if she sent us or she was forced or whatever, but I'm sure she was probably happy because she raised 27 kids from birth. Mm -hmm. She's a beautiful person. So I just remember when the, this truck arrived, a truck, and it had a big canopy kind of thing in the back, and they had some um, benches. Not no such thing as seatbelts and stuff like that. It was just benches. And I was so excited to go. I was just like, wow, I can hardly wait to go on an adventure. But I didn't realize that I wasn't coming home. I thought I was just going for a cruise with a bunch of other kids. And I was just going to be just, wow, so excited. My sister was there. There was two brothers, a sister, myself, a cousin that lived with us, so kind of like my other sister, um, and a whole bunch of my cousins, and I was just excited. So anyways, when we got there, and I remember getting out of this truck that had no lights or anything, so I probably fell asleep because I was just a kid. And when I got out of the truck, I looked at this huge building and I was just like oh, so excited. I can go and I can, I can just, oh, I could hardly wait to explore. And still didn't know I wasn't going home that night. So as soon as we got in there, we were all told to go into the bathroom. It was a huge bathroom we all had to take our clothes off and then they put I think it was kerosene of like a kind of a gas on your hair in case you had lice and it was smelled gross because they used it for lighting lamps or something like that I'm not sure I was just really disgusted because I thought gee my mom would never let me have lice right because and we were just a spotless family. So anyways, after that, they gave us these clothes. The girls had dresses, but before they gave us the nice clothes, they, they cut our hair and I was just going, why are you cutting my hair? My mom's gonna be mad. You're not supposed to just cut my hair. And the, I remember them saying, your mom doesn't care. And I went, yes, she does. Wait till she, she's going to be mad, you know. And then I noticed all the other little girls were getting their hair cut and everything else. And I was thinking, oh, my God, their moms are going to be so mad at them. But anyways, so they cut our hair. And then... Then they gave us these little dresses and I was kind of like, oh, they were kind of pretty, but they were old and used and stuff like that. But they gave them to us and they gave us some shoes and, you know, just some clothing to wear. And then we were all given pajamas that we had to take up and sheets and we went up to this room and they were all bunk beds. There must have been, oh, geez. I would say 40 bunk beds. 
in that room. Maybe even more. I don't know. I was just a kid. It's kind of hard to... Mm -hmm. But I, I know there was lots of bunk beds. And all the little girls, me, mm -hmm. had to sleep on the bottom. And the big girls got to sit uh, sleep on the top. And I'm going... But I'm going home. I don't need to make my bed, right? And they said, no, you're not going home. You're going to stay here. And I went, I don't want to stay here. I want to go see my mom and start crying. And lots of other kids were crying. We were all just losing it there. But anyways, we somehow went to bed that night and got up in the morning like really early. It was still dark. And they got us all out of bed and we had to um, go to church. And I'm sitting there going to church like it's still dark outside. This is, you have to go to church before breakfast. Would that have been like your first time like experience with church or did your family? My family never took me to church before then. I mean, of course, I was in day school before that. So we always had to say a prayer in the morning. And so, but this was really weird. I thought, oh my goodness. And they had a long mass. It was like about an hour long. And then we went for breakfast. So I was pretty hungry by the time we got to, to the, um, the room, where, dining room where we were all supposed to eat. And all of a sudden I got so excited because I see my brothers and I was waving away at them and because they were separated from us in the same room but they were separated like boys on one side and girls on the other and I was waving away at my brother and just loving next thing I knew I got a smack in the face and told to go and sit down at my table and I'm going just waving at my brother they said, you might have carnal thoughts. And I'm going, hmm, I wonder what that word means. Anyways, I didn't know what car carnal thoughts were, whatever. But I was scared after that. I just kind of wave a little bit to my brother. And then they were gone. My brothers were gone. And there was just my sisters, my two sisters, a bunch of girls. And I'm going, I wonder what happened to the boys. Like, where's my brother? Anyways, never did find out anything. And um, so I was excited for, this was my first time. I was excited to have breakfast. I wonder what kind of breakfast they have. Like these nuns and priests and stuff, eh? And they bought out this, um, I always remember breakfast. Cause we, I was at, we sat at picnic tables and from the biggest girl to the littlest girl on both sides of the picnic table and I was always one of the littlest girls. So I took a taste of my porridge and it was gross. It was burnt. I don't know if you ever tasted burnt porridge, but it was gross. And they pushed it away and I wasn't gonna eat it and I got smacked for that. You're gonna eat it. If you don't eat it, where you're going to sit here till you eat it. And I was just going, I can't eat this. It's gross, right? Because my mom, we always had fresh veggies, fresh everything. Like, it wasn't like this. Like I said, we were rich in my family. And um, next thing I knew, I had a bigger bowl because the big girls wouldn't, wouldn't eat theirs. So I'd have a 
flipping big, huge bowl of porridge to eat, and I couldn't say no because I was the littlest, and I was going to get a beating from either the nuns or the big girls, whatever. So I learned to eat it and just hold my breath. And I do remember one time puking, and they made me eat it anyway. It, like, it was really gross. And so anyways, I really don't honestly remember what we had for breakfast, um, lunch or supper. I don't know why, but I just kind of like, I don't know. I can't, I probably blocked it. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Who knows? So I still don't know. I did ask my cousin one time and he got really upset and told me, what do you want to know for? Really, what do you want to know for? And he was really upset, so I never asked again anybody because mm -hmm. I didn't know. And then we all had a chore to do after breakfast. We had to clean up, and this is all before 9 o'clock because we had to be at school at 9. And I was so shy. I was so, so shy. I did not want to go to school. After school, we had to go to church again. No, we didn't go to church. We said the rosary. Then we went to church after supper, finished our chores. And then we went to bed. But we had to say the rosary again when we went to bed. It was just like pray, pray, pray all the time. Mm -hmm. And... Um, at night, you could hear the little girls crying. I was really, I was okay because I had sisters and cousins, so I always went and cried to them because I didn't want anybody to see me cry. And they were really good. They helped me out a lot. Um, the stuff I seen there was just horrible. There was stuff I seen that I just, like poor little kids getting molested and we always knew and I was one of them like whenever you'd see the priest because you have to get um, you have to get instruction before you took your first communion and so First Communion is really like for little girls. And he always took one little girl in at a time. And my experience was like he'd make me do things that weren't very good. And if I said anything, he, he had a big picture of God sitting there. And he'd just say, God will be angry with you. Well. You know, I'm already pay praying like three, four times a day. And, I'm, and I know this God is almighty. And, you know, he'd strike you down if you didn't do things right and stuff. I was terrified. And everybody knew as soon as he walked out of his office and you had a chocolate bar. And I didn't even want to eat that chocolate bar because I know what I had to do for it. It, it was gross. So you just gave it away. I noticed all the little girls used to give away their chocolate bars. There was a lot of stuff that I seen when I was at residential school. And I know 
Oh, yeah. Like, there was pedophiles there. The, well, first, this so-called priest, man of God, whatever he is, he um, admitted to molesting only 13 of us. And I know there's more, you know. And we had to, they wanted me to go to his sentencing, and I said no. You know what, he took so much of my life already, I'm not giving him another, another second. And by this time I was clean and sober. I wasn't, you know, so. The boys had a supervisor, his name was Louis. And he had something like 87 charges in Northwest Territories, 84 charges in Northern BC. But miraculously, he says that he did not molest anybody at Bobel. Except I can tell you that a lot of my cousins are gone because he molested them and they never did get over it, you know? They all died. You know, some from alcohol and, well, most of them were from alcohol. Some were from car accidents and, but life just wasn't worth it for them. Cause he, anyways, I don't know how long he got, but he's out, he didn't get very long. And God knows who else. I can't believe some of this stuff. I'm not really sure, like seriously, if I have anything good to say. Because when you take a person like me out of a beautiful home and then go shove me in there and I get molested and abused and, you know, like the food was gross go to bed, get a beating for talking to your brothers. I really, I really don't think I have anything good to say about it. In this part of Marlene's story, she discusses her life after residential school and what it was like returning home. She talks about a lot of things, but there are a couple main themes I wanted to point out. One being the fact that residential schools intentionally separated siblings. One of the assimilation tools was to introduce family breakdown, and this was one of the ways of doing that. Another theme is internalized racism, which is something Marlene experienced, and I'm sure many others did too. It was easy for the residential school to manipulate children, and then for the children to believe the teachings that First Nations people were inferior so she came home with those ideas that were being taught to her. She also discusses her struggle with drugs and alcohol and how she overcame it. I did find out later on, like, where my brothers went. They sent one to Onion Lake and they sent the other one to um, La Brette. We all loved each other before. Mm -hmm. Today, I talked to one, one sibling. Um, my two oldest brothers died of alcohol-related stuff. And then there's me. Um, then there's, I have another sister that's clean and sober like me. But we just, we're strangers, mm -hmm. you know? And then I have 
had three other brothers, and they, two of them were gone from drugs and alcohol too, so. It's all been about, I don't know, the family breakdown has really been something, and you see it a lot on reserves. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not sure who thought up this idea, but he, of residential schools, but he must have been a really sick man because he messed up generations. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. And then when I got home, I hated everybody, including myself, because my grandma and grandpa, my mom and dad never did show up to come and see how we were doing. And I remember the, the nuns saying, they don't want you, they don't want to see you guys. You're just Indians. You have to try and learn how to be a better person. And by being better, they meant be white, right? Yeah. So anyways, that was, I really believed them because I thought, well, if they really loved me, they would have came and seen how I was doing. So just, ugh. You know, and then when we got there, mom was saying, it wasn't our fault, we can't go visit you. Yeah, 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 they told us you'd be lying about it. You know, like they really did a number. So before, I learned about residential school. I was so judgmental. Like as far as I was concerned, those drunks on the street, aren't, they're so stupid and you know, like blah, blah, blah. Um, I just thought, you know, they're so dumb. Like, ew, I don't want to be an Indian, which was another thing we were taught. Mm -hmm. And I got away with it quite a bit because my complexion is pretty fair. And then they started talking about residential school. And I was so shocked. I was so shocked because they taught me that this was deliberate. Before that, I just thought, you know, maybe they were just trying to teach us how to get on the right path of life, whatever. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what I used to think because like you believed what they were yeah. teaching you, right? Like yeah. You, mm -hmm. So when I got home, I just didn't like them. And I was looking at them and I was thinking, especially my grandpa, my grandpa was really dark. And he was one of the most beautiful people in the world, but I just thought he was a dumb Indian. You know, and my mom was even dumber, even though she was like fair complexed and stuff. So. I ended up in foster homes because I was not a very nice person and I just didn't care. It was just like, you know, like I had nowhere to go in life. So I started doing drugs when I was about 14, I guess. 13, 14. Started drinking and I'm not sure, but most of the time when you see uh, people that are um, molested, they're either very promiscuous or they're very like, don't touch me. I was the don't touch me ever. 
And if you did, then you probably ended up with a broken nose or something because I was just vicious. I was vicious and I was skinny, and, but you didn't mess with me because I hated, I hated everybody. So I stayed in the foster care system, but they couldn't, they couldn't um, tame me. <laughs> so by the time I was 14, I was out on my own and I was working and like under the table and stuff. I don't know how I did it. I really don't. I got into drugs. My drug of choice was um, cocaine with needles, not with and of course, all the other stuff. I'm sure I've tried everything. And many times I wanted to commit suicide um, and tried, you know, tried a few times, but I guess the creator had a different, a different path for me. So I moved to BC away from family. I just, was by myself and I've been by myself ever since and um, it's been quite the journey. I got into an accident in in BC, a serious car accident and I thought ah, oh. I remember being in BC for four years and not seeing my mom and coming home for 20 minutes and I left, went back to BC because the drugs were over there. And one day this guy asked me to go out on a, go out in the bush in, in, in BC and the trees are so thick, mountains and everything. He said, let's go out there, let's go have a, have a bonfire and we'll just, you know, sit around and BS. And I, I was really quite happy about to do that, get out of the city for a bit. So when he got there, he built this big bonfire. He had um, kind of like an old converted bus in, and it was in a really, like a nice camper kind of thing, right? I didn't realize, you know, where we were or nothing because I wasn't really watching. I was probably smoking pot or high on something because I was always high on something. And um, I think by this time I was 20 and I had done so many drugs. And I wasn't really a drinker, but I sure drank a lot just to keep up with everybody. I don't know. So anyways, we he took me out there and all of a sudden comes out of the camper and he's got my bag. And my bag has everything in it for me to get high. I had my needle in there. I had drugs and everything. And he threw it right in that bonfire. And I was just like, what are you doing? And I just hated him. If I would have had a knife, I'm sure, you know, I'd be in jail for murder. And he just held me and he told me, you have too much you have too much going on. Like you have brains, you have, you know, your life could be so much different. You don't need to be on drugs. And I was just like, oh my God, I just want to kill you, right? And I sat out there for, I think he had me out there for a week and I detoxed. 
and I hated him. And I didn't know where to go. I had no idea where we were, so you can't really leave. It's just like, I don't know if you've ever been in the wilds of BC, but it's a jungle out there. So anyways, after I detoxed, he brought me back to town and I was just like, he said, I'm gonna let you go and think about all the suffering you just did to get rid of that stuff. And um, I hope you stay off of it. And it was just like, F you, and <laughs> closed the door in his face. But then I started thinking, man, I suffered out there. You know, maybe I should quit. Well, maybe I'll go try one. But anyways, I talked myself out of it, because I suffered. And then we stayed out of there. I, I, I quit the needle drugs then. I was still smoking pot, and I was still drinking. Now I'm drinking a little heavier. But anyways, when I came back from BC, I thought, oh, I'm gonna stay here for a while. And I started a job after like got my back and everything was okay. And I ended up falling madly in love with this man. Oh, the one and only time. <laughs> Anyways, we have, um, we have twin girls. And um, we split up actually two weeks before, before I found out I was pregnant. But I thought to myself, okay, I didn't drink, I didn't drug, I quit everything and Every day in my mind, I was thinking, I'm gonna give these kids the best life they've ever had. They're not gonna have any drugs in their life, any alcohol in their life. I'm gonna work my buns off to make sure. And today I credit them for keeping me on the straight and narrow. I went back to university and before I even got out of school, out of the university, um, the high, this high school had called and asked who was their most promising indigenous, <laughs> their indigenous person, and they said me, and I went, I had a job before I even got out of university, and I stayed there for 22 years and worked with youth, and um, it was really something, like the money wasn't the greatest, I am a fierce advocate for people that are, that are, you know, suffering for whatever reason, you know, it might be. And then one day this girl, like, I remember when I tried to commit suicide a few times in BC, and I was just thinking, how come the Creator won't let me die? Why won't the Creator, I mean, we hit cars, we did, I just don't know what happened, why I was alive. Then one day this girl came in and she told me my story. And I was just looking at her going, why are you telling me my story? Anyways, after she left, I was thinking, oh my God, that's why the Creator didn't let me die. Because I know what these kids are going through. Mm -hmm. And um, I hope I helped a lot of them, but yeah, it's been really good. My daughters are fantastic. Um, 
they're both in university working hard and working at jobs to go get through because I don't get funding from mm -hmm. my bank for whatever reason. One's going for her master's in um, sociology and the other one is going for her master's in psychology. <laughs> Jeez. Awesome. Yeah, so I'm really proud of them. During this last part of the episode, I asked Marlene what type of advice or words of hope could she give to other survivors or other Indigenous people that maybe are going through a hard time and could use some inspiration. Her story itself is very inspirational, but the words of advice that she gives in this next section come straight from her heart. Yeah, it's, it's I don't know, the opportunities are just like so abundant, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I do find that a lot of our people have turned to God or um, Catholicism or Pentecostal or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I just like them to remember that they were born as Indigenous people, not as a Christian, not as a this or a that, you know. We're all born pure and Indigenous and be proud of who you are. As long as you, I really truly believe again that you have to know where you came from. You know, we're resilient people. They've tried to kill us. They've tried to, you know, the foster care system is the, is another, another big system. But we need to learn how to love and take care of our children. Mm -hmm. They're only here for a little while. And um, alcohol and drugs are evil, evil spirits. And they're only here to destroy us. They'll destroy us long before residential school is, mm -hmm. you know. But like I said, we suffer from PTSD. Find an elder, find somebody to talk to and let go of that garbage you've been carrying. I think that's probably my message to everybody. It doesn't matter if you're Indigenous or not. Mm -hmm. I'm not. I love everybody. So when I learned about how residential school has affected our our people for generations, it just like really opened up my eyes and my heart and made me realize like, Oh my God, I'm so proud of who I am. And you know what? If that was me and they came there and took my five, six-year-old kid away, I'd be a drunk too. You don't just don't do that. And I was just really got a lot of empathy for our people that are suffering. And I really truly believe we all suffer from PTSD, mm -hmm. you know, and we don't know why. And a lot of these people have no idea what residential school has done to them because it's not widely taught. Mm -hmm. And how do you know where you're going if you don't know where you came from? You have to know and you have to be proud of 
we're still laughing. We're still living. And I'm loving life. And I just, I just am on a mission to try and help other people to love life. You only have one. Thank you for listening to another episode of Still Here, Still Healing. This was such an important story to hear, and I'm glad you all listened to it. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I would appreciate if you could subscribe, leave a rating or a review, and if you know anybody that is interested in being featured on the next episode of Still Here, Still Healing, please contact me at shshpodcast at gmail.com.